Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Social Dilemma, a documentary about the manipulative and dangerous aspects of our online social activity currently streaming on Netflix. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 86%, and the critics' consensus reads, clear-eyed and comprehensive, The Social Dilemma presents a sobering analysis of our data mind present. My guests today are the cinematographers for the film, who split oversight of the documentary and narrative portions of the film, but share responsibility for creating the cohesive look and feel of the footage that became The Social Dilemma. We're going to delve into the specifics of what that means, but first, introductions. John Behrens, you are the director of photography for the documentary portion. You've been working in the documentary space as a cinematographer and camera operator since 2003. Before that, you worked doing multi-camera live rock and roll events, as well as independent narrative features. Welcome to Below the Line. Good to be here. Glad you're here as well, John. Also with us is Jonathan Pope, the DP for the narrative segments. Jonathan, you've been working as a cinematographer since 2009, largely in music videos, commercials, and narratives, including the 2021 horror feature, Initiation. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kid. Thanks so much for having us. A note for our listeners, our conversation today will include spoilers for The Social Dilemma, so this is your warning. Let's start by explaining to our audience what we mean when we say... The film blends documentary investigation and narrative drama. The film starts out like a traditional documentary where we have expert interviews and a little bit of graphics that sort of help illustrate the topics that our subjects and our experts talk about. But then we get brought into a a world that is essentially a narrative storyline that combines all of the sort of points and ideas that our subjects brought to us in the traditional documentary side, but in a storyline that plays out about an American family with tech addictions and struggles that happen within the family over devices, and then sort of what's going on behind the curtain inside of the AI that sort of is manipulating us. And that that's told as a narrative storyline shot by Jonathan in a traditional narrative fashion with lots of visual effects. And the documentary side was done in a sort of hyper-stylized but traditional documentary fashion. Now, John, I think that's a great summary of sort of how it comes together. So did Jeff Lorowski come to you with this plan from the beginning, or is this something that developed once the interview started to come together? This developed as the interview started to come together, because as we're sitting here trying to understand the existential threat of how this kind of tech is affecting democracy and how uh, the addictive nature of it is actually designed behind the scenes, he started to feel like it would just be so much easier and more illustrative and more watchable if it actually was told by characters sort of living out that scenario that people could relate to. But that didn't come along till very late in the game. And they had already edited a bunch of the interviews together and sort of found the through lines. And that's when the storyline started to appear. And that's where Jeff and writer Vicki Curtis collaborated and wrote this storyline that would become the narrative. And so then Jonathan, to jump to your involvement, we'll go back and forth on this a little bit. So they brought the storyline then to you. Yeah, yeah. When they when they came to me, they had already had the film cut together as a full length feature. All of the documentary portions were there. And then in place of the narrative portions, they had uh, animated storyboards with temp voiceover from crew 
So they kind of got a sense of where the story would fit in, how it would be used as visualization tools. And this was all, you know, rough. They had a script, a traditional narrative script. I don't remember how many pages it was, but that's how it was brought to me was as a full feature with storyboards in place of the narrative sections. So I think this blending of narrative and documentary is very effective in The Social Dilemma. But at the same time, I'm concerned that it can be a blurry line. And I'm wondering how you guys felt about it coming together. That You know, maybe the temptation to use narrative to push a story that the document itself maybe doesn't tell on its own. Yeah, I think the big challenge is filmmaking as a form is subjective. But documentary tries to be as objective as possible to just show you a, something you didn't understand before and let you make a decision on your own. Narrative is really subjective and it's really trying to very much frame and tell a specific story. So the challenge here was to take as objective of, a, of an approach as possible to the scripted narrative, even though it of course is subjective and try not to color that too much and then push it into the realm of sort of too fantasy or too unbelievable. Rolling the objective side of the documentary into the subjective side of the narrative is the challenge. It's worth noting that first and foremost, this was always meant to be an education tool and a way to start conversations. And Jeff and the team, their hope was that this would reach the biggest audience possible because of the gravity of what the issue is. So the intention behind the narrative, I think, was really to, to serve entertainment purposes, but also educational purposes and kind of visualize these topics that aren't necessarily easy to wrap your head around them. It's, it's, some of this stuff is really dense and we're talking algorithms and data and like, how do you, how do you make that interesting and how do you make that personal and how do you see how that's affecting humans? You know, it's it, computers are hard to, <laughs> are hard to uh, put a face on. So that I think was really the intention behind the narrative was just to humanize this kind of abstract topic in a way that would be entertaining and digestible to a, a big audience. Well, and we'll talk more about those specifics and how that came together. Let me ask each of you how you got involved in the project. Uh, John, since you were involved first with the documentary side, why don't you start? Uh, I was at Sundance in 2015 with a film called Racing Extinction. And I was um, heading to a screening and Jeff Orlowski jumped in the car and was heading to another screening. And I was introduced by Olivia, who was producing Jeff's film and the film that I was working on. They were like, this is Jeff. And I was like, oh, you're the man who did Chasing Ice. And I was, I already knew about Chasing Ice. I was super impressed. And I had heard about Chasing Coral. It was just a fleeting, fleeting meeting in the back of an SUV on the way to a screening. Then later down the line, I got a call for a meeting and I sat down with Larissa uh, Rhodes, the producer and Jeff in a coffee shop. And they said, we'd like to hire you to do this film. And that's where it began. I mean, I couldn't believe that that sort of brief meeting led to the discussions that would end up being this film, but it was great. It was a, immediately, it felt like a good thing. Well, that is very interesting, John. Uh, so Jonathan, did you have a pre-existing relationship or a connection with Jeff or someone else involved no, when they came to you? I didn't. My, my story of getting involved is, is uh, much different. Uh, it came about far faster. So our first AD and uh, production manager from a feature that I had done earlier in 2019, um, I had a really good relationship with them. They had been hired on to The Social Dilemma. And when they heard that they were in need of a narrative cinematographer, they recommended me. And so I had a meeting with, I had a phone meeting with Jeff, Daniel Wright, and Larissa Rhodes. 
and we kind of discussed high level things. They said they would send me the the cut of it. And I saw the cut and I, I was just like, I've, I've got to be a part of this. So I immediately expressed my interest. And from there uh, to shooting was about a week. It was very, very, very quick turnaround. I had about a week uh, from the first conversation with them to the first time cameras rolled on the narrative side of things. So it came about very wow. quickly. <laughs> your, your planning time was somewhat compressed. John, going back to the documentary side, I'm presuming you had a little bit more runway as far as preparing for what you guys are trying to do here. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan, I'm super impressed by what you guys managed to do in the short prep time you had. <laughs> we, uh, I mean, it's mind blowing actually, uh, but you, you guys, uh, yeah. Cause it wasn't just your narrative, but it also had extreme visual effects and motion right. control and all sorts of stuff that all the things. So yeah, uh, this wasn't like a quirky indie drama <laughs> run and yeah. gun thing. This is heavily, heavily mapped yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. And that was super impressive to me. Oh, um, we had much more, more uh, run up. We, I think we had about four months where from our first discussion until we rolled our first frame. And during that period of time, we des- we designed a set, found a location. We looked at a whole lot of different styles of locations. And Jeff liked the idea of tech startup basement as a sort of a vibe, a look and feel for the locations. So we looked at old warehouse space in San Francisco. I like the idea of shooting in old office space where the furniture is all removed and you're looking at this entire floor of a skyscraper and the wires are sort of vomiting up out of the floor and hanging down out of the ceiling. And just the the startup has just literally been ripped out and gone. And you're now sitting in the hulking emptiness of that. So we rolled elements of stuff like that and in industrial space and sort of the hip elements of the startups that are in brick buildings and brought all that together in the set that we shot the first two weeks of interviews on. And that was all the folks that were from the Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane Technologies group were all set on, shot on that set. And so we had a nice couple of months to design that, find the look and feel, do camera tests, and then ultimately settle on a lighting plot and a set. And then we had a week to build that set and pre-light it, and then two weeks of shooting on that set before we sort of then moved on to doing sort of the more traditional find a location, bring in a crew, light it and shoot. Talking about the teams in general, and this for both sides. So I know that there's a first AD and a second AD credited with the film. Jonathan, is that your team? Uh, John, did you not have ADs as part of the documentary portion or were they smaller roles for the people who are helping with that? Travis was our first AD. We, we had a series of ADs led by Travis LaSalle. I don't know. John, did you guys have ADs on your on your end of things? I have always begged for an AD on some of the documentary stuff I worked on. I just, oh. I would love that so much. Uh, but we, <laughs> um, some of the crazy stuff we end up doing, we're like, yeah, we're out in about doing something that really needs uh, some organization and, and you know, the produ- <laughs> yeah, and someone that's job is that specifically. But yeah. no, Larissa, um, Larissa Rhodes and, and Daniel Wright were essentially working as the ADs um, in the producing staff on all the documentary stuff. And they did an amazing job. It was one of the most organized documentaries I have worked on. And I always got plenty of heads up on, here's the five locations we're considering. What would you like? Here's the gaffer going to a new town. Would you like to have a conversation? There was lots of lead up. So we had very few surprises on the day. I would have loved to have had an AD, but with Larissa and Daniel, I didn't necessarily need one. 
I see that there's nine gaffers listed. And I'm presuming that Jonathan on the narrative side, you probably had one gaffer for the run of it. We had two gaffers. Oh, you had two actually. Okay. Yes. Because we shot in Colorado and LA. So we Uh had, uh, I had a Colorado team and then I had an LA team that was kind of ahead of us uh, because we had to be prepping that while we were in Colorado. But John, you and moving around location, location to capture these interviews, use different gaffers for different portions, I'm presuming. Yeah, I would say that our establishing key gaffer for this was Luke Servold, uh, based in the South Bay in San Francisco. And Luke is brilliant because he is always on the cutting edge of technology. He's bringing in new LEDs all the time and auditioning stuff and saying, we could do this with an MAT and HMI, but we could do it with a sky panel. We can use a Steras, just bringing in the latest stuff. He was a brilliant collaborator to have on the show because he has the experience of all the tungsten lights and all the latest LED stuff. And we played around and it was a documentary still. So we didn't have the budget for 15 sky panels. We sort of had to work with with stuff. I think I even brought all the lights I had to the table and said, well, here's a bunch of Dito lights that I have and a bunch of. So we mixed tungsten Dito lights and LED Lico's. And I did a bunch of testing of gel full blue gel to see which of the full blue gels, whether it was GAM, Roscoe, or Lee, matched the LEDs and HMIs the best. So when you had tungsten light on a gray surface right next to HMI, you wouldn't say, why is that magenta? Why is that green? Um, So that was a testing thing that Luke was able to show me and do that was brilliant. But Luke led our team of gaffers and established sort of the lighting package and a lot of the lights that we would bring in. And then that got shared with the gaffers that we worked with across the country. And I'm so thankful once again to have had his help. Right. We, we did a crossover with Jason, right? Jason was also on your team. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. Jason, Jason's brilliant. And he was yeah. able to both be a great interview lighting guy and then narrative. Yeah. To clarify, Jason Tahara uh, was my gaffer for the Colorado portion, but he was also on the documentary side. So he was kind of a crossover between the two. And then the my uh, my Los Angeles team was uh, my gaffer was Connor Souls. Is Connor a narrative guy that you work? I mean, what's your history with Connor? Yeah, Connor, um, I've worked with for a few years now, mostly on narrative, but he's done a few of the docs that I've I've worked on lighting interviews and stuff. He's a great guy. We have a good history together. And Jason, I had not worked with prior to this, but he actually came as a recommendation through Jeff and Exposure because of his experience on the documentary side of things. And obviously with the very quick lead up to production, we just had, I had to kind of run on instinct that I knew, okay, if, if Jeff trusts him and that team trusts him, then I'm going to trust him. And I had a very quick uh, introductory conversation with him and he was just such a pro. So I felt very comfortable going with him. Yeah, I remember uh, when we were shooting some of my, one of my more favorite interviews on this, Jason talking about a narrative thing that he was shooting, that he himself was shooting. And it was great to hear I'm like, oh, okay, our gaffer shoots. That's a good thing because it means that, that mm-hmm. he knows not just the lights, but the lenses. And he knows right. he's looking through the lens with us, which is so valuable in a gaffer. My, my mentor was a gaffer and I was always trained that when you're setting a light, you look through the lens. And you see how this is going to look. You don't just stand there and say left, right, where, which way, up, down. You go look at how that is becoming part of the scene. So Jason has that camera experience. So it makes him an awesome collaborator. 
Yeah, that's something I've always valued in a good gaffer is is someone that brings something to the table, someone that has opinions. I don't want someone to just come to set and be waiting around for me to tell them what to do. I want I I want to receive opinions. I want ideas. I want I want a collaborator. So it's it's great to have, you know, Connor and Jason on this who both have such strong visual opinions because we had to move so quickly. It was it was a lot of collaboration. So I was always open to ideas and they both have a wonderful visual sense. Speaking of cameras and lenses and basically the the visual look, talk to me about the decisions you made that you coordinate around that area. Coming off of Chasing Coral, which was Jeff's last film and the Exposure Labs team last last film, they had two FS7s and two Red Dragons that they had used on that previous film. And they'd use the dragons mostly in underwater housings for all of that stuff. And so they had those cameras and they said, well, um, is there any reason we can't use these? Jeff had a lot of fluency with red, me not so much. Up until this, most of my experience was with Airy and Sony. So Jeff was really comfortable moving with those cameras moving forward. And we did some tests. We were looking for our A camera, which was going to be the highest resolution camera doing the shot that would be right into the lens through an eye direct. So we wanted as high a resolution as we could get because we were going to be cropping from a waist up to a close up all the time. And so that resolution needed to be really up there. So being that we had a couple of Sonys, uh, my Sony F5, and then we had the two dragons, we we're like, well, let's look at a Sony Venice. And then let's look at a Red Monstro. And so we did a test to see which camera would be the ultimate choice. And both of them looked fantastic. I was leaning towards the Venice because um, I just love the look and the sensitivity, the light sensitivity of that camera is spectacular. But the Monstro looked really good as well. So I sort of said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, both of these cameras are totally capable of doing this. I lean towards the Venice, but what's your call, Jeff? And Jeff said that he wanted the full resolution that you could get the 8K so that he had more flexibility for the crop. So we went with Monstro and I think it was great. And I was really impressed uh, with how over the years, Red has sort of ironed out sort of the little gotchas on set and that camera worked really seamlessly and smooth. Red Monstro was our A camera. And then we had two Dragons, two FS7s and an F5. And then sometimes one of the DSLRs, uh, one of the A7Ts or the A7Ts. So you'll run a specific interview with four or five cameras at once. On this one, actually, we never got below six cameras. Um, We shot every single interview with six cameras or more. And that was specifically because Jeff said there's you know, it's so much information and these interviews are going to be going on for so long that he really wanted the ability to not only be able to watch it and have it be watchable and have that cut be engaging, but he also wanted the ability to both take the end of the lens shot and cut entirely within that, which meant that he would use the A camera and re-crop that from a a medium close-up to a close-up and then a profile camera that was a 90 degree profile and could intercut between those two and have three shots without ever touching any of the other angles. And for once, it's for emphasizing a point, that's what they did sometimes. Then sometimes we would do all off axis stuff where you've got the traditional slider. We had a Dana dolly that was a 10 foot move. And then we had another wide shot or two, and then a traditional off axis angle. And for stuff that was a little a little less impact and a little bit more expository or, or for setup, then we would use that set of angles. And then sometimes they just mixed everything all together and sort of abandoned certain rules. Yeah, they're so dynamic, the interviews. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember in the beginning, we played with that, right? We're like, okay. And so at one point in the very first interview, we had a Dana Dolly on both sides of the A camera. And I didn't like as much how it looked because it was on the key side. So it was a lot flatter. But we realized it wasn't as much because of the lighting, because with time, I could have probably raised the key and gotten that to be a little a little less flat. It just was too weird to have two sides of, of the A camera. So we ended up moving everything sort of to the right or the left of the line so that we didn't break the line. Occasionally, we did something over the shoulder, but it was it was fun to play in the sandbox and see what Davis, our editor, was doing, because we didn't know. After the first round of interviews, we didn't know how much of it was going to be usable and how it would cut. And he just sort of, you know, went nuts and just cut everything together and then sort of refined it a little bit. And it worked. And we're like, oh, ah, this does work. You can go from the <laughs> into the lens to the off axis, to the profile, to the wide. You know, it turned out that some things you didn't want to do, like you don't want to cut from the, the end of the lens to the right off axis. That's just a weird cut. But if you went from the end of the lens to a profile that was fine. Or if you went into the lens to the wide or from the wide into the lens, those things all worked pretty well and didn't cause you to trip visually. Now, when you talk about the first set of interviews, those are the ones that you gathered on the stage in the Bay Area where you had built the sets and brought folks in. Uh, so how many interviews made up that first portion? We did seven or eight interviews on that set. And essentially, we had to turn around and end up looking 360 degrees. So we had some wild walls and a grid so that we could change the look. But we established a lot of the look on that set in those first seven or eight interviews. And then we took a little break um, while they basically went out and sort of found the next round of subjects, locations. And we spent a fair amount of time trying to decide what those practical locations would look like and how they would, um, if they would intercut. And in the meantime, Davis, our editor, was doing these test cuts to make sure what we were doing was the right direction. And how many additional locations did you guys end up picking up for interview, do you recall? I want to say, well, we shot in New York, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco proper, Boulder, Denver. Um, I want to say there was another one. And then we had two more green screen shoots, which we composited the backgrounds into that were in San Francisco and Denver. So yeah, I think nine, nine different locations. And some of those cities had more than one. Oh, we shot in Oakland as well. And then for some of the, some of the interviews early on, the question came up, okay, so we're going to demo this set when we're done, but we might want to do a pickup on our interview subjects. So um, what are we going to do about that? We're not going to build the set again. So I said, well, let's shoot plates of every, every set and every location and do measurements, lenses, lensing, lighting positions, f-stops, every metric you could take. So uh, these guys listened and we did that on every single setup. We shot plates, measured everything, kept a log. And so um, almost a year later, they wanted to do some pickups with our lead character, Tristan Harris. So we went to a green screen, brought in an onset compositor, and then brought up the set again. And we did an AB side by side. I told Jeff, okay, look away. Um, and then <laughs> brought up the images. And I'm like, which one's the set? And he was like, uh, 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 yeah, uh, you know, and we got it pretty darn close. And that was onset key. And then they went to final frame um, in New York and really dialed it and got those keys. It, it was a bit of a challenge to get those to be super seamless. You bring it up, Jeff, reminded me of a question. Occasionally we hear the voice of the interviewer. It's not regular. And I don't think that they're independently mic'd. Is that Jeff conducting the interviews? Yes. 
as a director of documentaries, is that traditionally the role that they will conduct the interviews? Or have you ever worked with a director who, I don't know, is outside of that process, but still sort of directing the documentary overall? Yeah, there's some documentaries where the there will be a producer that's in the field that will conduct the interviews. Um, and the director's sort of working as a as sort of a larger, uh, larger overseeing role. Most of the documentaries I work on, the director is conducting the interviews. There's times when I'll be working on something and the director will won't be even in town. They'll do it over Zoom. Uh, sometimes the producer will conduct the interview because the director is just not there because they're off, you know, working in another place. Alex Gibney does that a lot. He'll have multiple films going at once. And so sometimes he'll have a producer tee up the interview and then he'll zoom in and, and do the interview remotely, but he gets everything set up and then we'll do it remotely. There's other directors I've worked with that are like that, where they'll, they'll get their producer as lined up as possible to do the questions but Jeff was definitely involved. And then at the very end on this one, sometimes Jeff would ask uh, anyone in the room and we would all toss our questions in, uh, which was great. It's very collaborative. And then a lot of times Larissa Rhodes, our producer, would sit in the seat and do an additional set of questions. A lot of times these interviews were two hours long, sometimes three, really comprehensive. John, I also want to ask you a question about a specific interview and whether it affected the cinematography to have Jaron Lanier, but then it's intercut in the final version with his appearance on The View. And so I'm yeah. wondering whether you had watched the B-roll before you did the interview or did they find the B-roll and just go with what you had? Or what's the sort of, is there a collaborative aspect to that? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to see see what Jaron looked like. So I did watch some of The View and some of the other things, some of the live speeches that he had been on. And uh, yeah, and I wanted to make sure, you know, that we were still establishing our own look and I make everybody look their best. I feel like I... I learned something from watching The View, but I definitely then evolved it to sort of give us a little bit more of the, the social dilemma look on his interview. And he was great. Um, his interview was riveting. I mean, everything he has to say, he is such an interesting person and he knows this subject inside and out that the room is, you know, you're just like a kid in a candy store listening to him talk about this stuff because he's so in the know. And he also doesn't mince words. He doesn't mince words at all. He's like, get rid of this stuff. Delete it. Get off your phone. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's very, very to the point, very uh, eloquent in his words. So where in the schedule did his interview take place? He was midway through. Uh, we interviewed him in Oakland probably six to nine months in, and we were very happy to get his interview, I think, early on. He was probably sitting back and waiting to see what this was. And when he agreed to do the interview, we were really happy to have him. Talking about uh, the through line, though, of the story overall, I want to talk about Tristan Harris. And John, you mentioned him earlier as being a central figure of the documentary. Is it safe to assume that he was one of the early interviews? Because again, his sort of narrative carries us through the entire story, it seems, from watching the film. Yeah, so Tristan was actually our very first interview. It was great because it's really set the tone. It was Tristan was sort of teaching us the ropes for what it was this film would become. His close-up magic, he was doing magic on set right in front of us. And, you know, how do you shoot magic with six cameras and not give it away? But Tristan set the tone and kind of taught all of us where we were sort of headed on this journey. So I was thankful his interview was first. And he then brought in his team, the Center for Humane Technologies group that then came in after him. And all of them sort of set us on the path towards what the what would become our our story. Well, and I think there's another aspect to the film. There's a framing sequence with Tristan where he's setting up for a presentation. In the beginning, it's 
before there's an audience and he has some advisors and such. And then at the end, he's giving the presentation. And this is maybe a good segue into the narrative portion as well, because it seems to me, and John, I'm looking to you for this, we're the same folks that are doing our documentary, but this is filmed in a rather narrative fashion, wide shots, cutaways. Tell me a little bit about the decision to have this framing sequence, if you even saw it that way, and when this sort of came up in the filming. Tristan was talking about the idea of doing a presentation for a lot of uh, a lot of folks in Silicon Valley because he was feeling increasingly like this was an important thing to happen. And so we started talking to him early on as that was coming together. And we didn't just want to cover it like any old conference is covered because it that would have sort of stuck out like a sore thumb and it would have not had as much impact up next to the interviews. So we designed it like it was going to be shot like a multi-cam live television broadcast and much more cinematic. We chose a black box space with a big enough screen to encompass what he was going to talk about. And then I spent a lot of time pre-lighting that space. We had a prep day and cameras had assignments. We had clear comms so we could talk amongst ourselves. I was actually calling cues to the lighting during the thing. We had a Verite camera, uh, Zach Fink, who was running around shooting the behind the scenes, but it was all it was all sort of designed ahead of time to really show the impact of what Tristan was saying to these folks that were all our interview subjects and folks throughout Silicon Valley here all in this space. I enjoyed the fact that we could really give it more than just the let's land and document what's going on, but to actually give it a, a look and a feel that emphasizes the impact he's trying to make with what he was talking about. Well, and it was also very interesting and surprising, but in a way that brought it together to see other interviewees in the audience during the presentation as well. In a sense, I mean, as an AD perspective, I wondered how you got everyone back together again or whether, you know, what their patience was for that, because there were a lot of folks there actually in the room when they had, as you mentioned, done these extended interviews individually, but then came back basically to be background for this portion as well. Yeah, we were super thankful that all those folks were in the same place at the same time, because that's not an easy thing to do, to get all those folks in the room. I mean, it was fantastic. It, that was shot at uh, SF Jazz in San Francisco, which is a wonderful venue, and they were a pleasure to work with. They were very cooperative, letting this film crew come in and, you know, gel every single light. <laughs> you know, we gelled 60 lights in the ceiling to match them to daylight so the screen and the foreground wouldn't be orange and blue. And backstage was great. They were just a really wonderful venue to work with. It took a while to schedule that when everyone would be able to make it. So yeah, I felt like that was a, it was a lucky break to get everybody back. One more question, John, for you before we, we turn more fully into the narrative portion. Also with Tristan, there's a segment where he goes to the U.S. Senate hearing on persuasive technology, but there's also footage of him in his hotel room before he goes. Was that you and your team? That was all Jeff. All the stuff that happened in D.C. was Jeff himself shooting just uh, with an FS7 Verite. Um, and it was really because they needed to keep the impact super, super down, right? I mean, for us to show up with sound, I mean, I don't even think there was a sound person. I think Larissa put a mic on him and Jeff shot Verite or maybe Jeff even just shot by himself. And I think that was a choice very specifically to keep the, the impact down and, and also not distract Tristan when he's getting in front of the lawmakers. And because Jeff is a is an excellent cameraman himself, he was able to shoot Verite and have it fuse right into what would fit into the film. And there's not a lot of Verite in the film. So it was it was well chosen. And I'm glad they did use it because it shows that yes, they actually did go to Washington and they did talk to lawmakers 
Jonathan, bringing you back into the conversation. So a lot of this film structure is in place before you've done a single frame of the narrative portion. Yeah, like I said, when they when they came to me, they already had the film cut together and they had anim- animated storyboards with temp voiceover uh, in place. So I kind of knew, obviously things changed from there, but I knew the groundwork for how things were planned to be fit in and when they would be overlaid on top of an interviewer to be used as a visualization and when we would more fully dive into a proper traditional scene, things like that. So that, that was uh, immensely helpful because, like I said, we did not have much of any pre-production time. So... Jeff and I, uh, we didn't do traditional shot lists. We mostly operated off of overheads. So I would kind of sit down with him and we would lay out the scene in a, in a program on my iPad and we'd map out the blocking, we'd map out the camera placement. And a lot of that was guided by those storyboards. We kind of used those as a jumping off point, but we got many more shots than were actually storyboarded for purely because... You know, when you're in a room, it's one thing to storyboard a scene and you know, have temp voiceover and whatever. But when you actually get the talent in there and you actually get them in the space and get them interacting with one another, the timing and the and the performances change the pacing of everything. So we we realized that we needed more shots than we that they had actually storyboarded for. So things kind of evolved as we went along. We tried to plan as many of the shots prior to our first day of principal as we could because of Jeff's commitments and my commitments and and just the limited amount of time we had. We didn't get a chance to get through everything. So it sometimes became a situation of we'd go film, then we'd come back to the hotel, stay up very late with, it was me, Jeff, and Travis LaSalle, our our first AD, who's amazing, would sit down and map out the next day. And we'd we'd always kind of be trying trying to get ahead. We stayed on our toes, got very little sleep, but it was worth it. (laughs) So on the narrative side, there's two threads, if you will. There's the family and what's going on with them. And then there's the AI and what's happening with uh, sort of in this sort of virtual space. Jonathan, I want to ask you about how the filming was split between, you said Colorado and Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah. So we filmed all of the family portions. I, I always call them like the real world stuff uh, in Colorado. And that was split between Denver, Boulder. And then there was a town, the school scenes were in a, a school that was in between Boulder and Denver that I'm forgetting the name of. And then all of the AI scenes were on a soundstage in Los Angeles. Is this meant to be now or is it meant to be in a specific year related to sort of the start of these technologies? That was never a direct conversation that we had, but I think the intention was always for it to feel now or very near future. I I don't think they ever wanted to pin it to a specific uh, time. And you'll notice all of the the text message pop-ups. They don't look like any text message that you've seen. They don't look like iMessages. They don't look like something you'd see on your Android. They're very unique to this film. And I think that was very deliberate on their part because they're not trying to marry it to any particular operating system. They're not trying to marry it to any particular time. As Jeff has said in his own interviews, like this is something that is an existential threat in, in a lot of ways. And so it's an issue that's not going away. So he didn't want it to be so stuck in today that it wouldn't feel relevant five years from now. Were there aspects of the family dramatization that was particularly challenging, whether based on schedule or what you were trying to capture? Yeah. So uh, the most challenging it's funny because I don't. I hope you don't notice it in the film. Uh, I don't think you do. But the most challenging scene to film was actually the museum sequence, and that was just a scheduling thing. So we shot that at the Natural History Museum. I don't. I don't remember if that was Boulder or Denver. So I apologize. But 
the timing of that didn't work out. We couldn't get access to that until later after we had shot the LA portions. And unfortunately, Skyler um, Rosando, who plays Ben, uh, was not available then. So uh, it was it was a trip because I had never been to the location. I had seen photos of the location. Jeff had already kind of figured out exactly where in this space he wanted Ben to be and, and the rough blocking in that space. So I had seen like iPhone photos of the space. And then I got to do a quick scout with, with Travis and Jeff over there and just take my own reference photos. But I had to shoot Ben uh, Schuyler on green screen and then shoot the plates for that scene after I shot. It is the total reverse of how you would traditionally shoot a scene like that. You shoot the plates and then you light to the plates, right? But we were totally reverse of that because of timing and logistics. The way we did it was we shot uh, Skyler in Los Angeles when we were shooting the AI sections off on the side. We had a green screen space and we knew that we knew the exact shots we wanted to get. So we framed them up. We lit them to how I was imagining I would light it in the space. Then after we shot the, the LA section, we went back to Colorado, went into the space, lit it the way that I had planned. And we had a stand in for Ben. And then we would just make sure it was framed up properly, have him step out. And we had um, a VFX artist there to pre-composite what we shot in LA to the plates that we were shooting in Colorado. So we could make sure everything lined up properly. You know, Jonathan, I'll say I didn't notice, but I can't speak for John. John might have more sense. Of- <laughs> I didn't notice. I didn't know that until just now. I didn't know you. Yeah. I mean, no, you you nailed it because I did not oh, see that. I did not that, see that. That was... It's it's funny that like that was such an easy scene, but in some ways the the most challenging one to get. There's got to be a name for that in the business because there's always <laughs> one shot, one setup that just gets you. We're just like, oh, why yeah. is this so hard? There's got to be. I got to come up with a name for that one. But yeah, yeah. Good, I mean, you're, you're essentially just re- reverse engineering that sequence. Well, Jonathan, I can see why that was difficult, but to call that the most difficult aspect of the film, you're going to have to give me a little bit more information about how you did the AI work, where uh, Vincent Carthizer, best known as Pete Campbell from Mad Men, is playing all three of the AIs, the advertising engagement and the growth algorithms that are, if you will, manipulating uh, the characters in our narrative. Talk to me about how all that came together for you. Right. So the the plan from the beginning was always to have one actor play all three. Um, And we didn't know that Vincent was going to be our talent in that section until while we were shooting in Colorado, they were kind of simultaneously casting that role. And he was the one that they're really hoping to get, but uh, he finally came on. So the plan was always to have three there. And we knew to do that, um, we were going to need some form of motion control. So we looked at a number of different systems and we ended up going with the Milo motion control system because Jeff wanted these, you know, he wanted scope there. He wanted these big sweeping moves around that space because the set was incredibly impressive. Our production designer, um, Adam Wheatley, was building that while we were in Colorado and it just looked like Star Trek. Jeff wanted scope there, so he wanted to incorporate these big moves. So we had um, the Milo motion control rig. The hardest part about that was more so the timing for his performance. We didn't entirely know how that was going to work. So the initial idea was to have a click track so he could perform to a click track and he could know, okay, I need to hit this line here. I think we ended up abandoning that fairly quickly because Vincent was just such a pro. I mean, he knew his timing down to the second. So he he really had it nailed down and we would have stand-ins for his other, uh, for his counterparts 
So he'd be able to interact with them. And then we would pull them out if there was any sort of like crossing of a body or anything for visual effects. Um, we'd sometimes put them in as a, as a body in frame if we were doing it over and we would just come low, not only because it was more dynamic, but also so we wouldn't see the body double's face and that saved on on time for visual effects. So yeah, that was that was how we handled him. As far as the, the kind of the voodoo doll of Ben that's in the center of the room, when we would practice the move on the Milo, we had a essentially just a C stand with a tennis ball there as as a point of reference for eyeline for focus uh, reference. Um, and so we would get all the data from that. We'd sometimes shoot a version of that just so we could see where that was in the space, and then we pull it out. And then one of our one of our visual effects teams would put that in a post. And I want to quickly mention who those people are, by the way, because they just did an outstanding job. Our, our visual effects teams were Mass Effects in Colorado and Ingenuity here in LA, and they both just did an outstanding job and could not have been easier to work with. I just want to mention that Matt and Shauna from Mass Effects are lovely, multi-talented folks, and they actually came in and and worked with us as our shooting crew on some of the interviews initially. So they got acquainted with the project early on. So they had some time to let this stuff develop, but they did a spectacular job and they're a pleasure to work with. Yeah, Matt and Shauna were always on set with us and they were just lovely. I loved working with them. It was a lot of visual effects work. Right, it, it was. I mean, we knew that from the beginning. That was all that was all mapped out from the beginning in the storyboards. And this actually is a good opportunity to point out what we shot on and why. When they first approached me about the project, as I mentioned, we had very little time in pre-production. So when it came to camera and lens selection, the camera selection was fairly straightforward. They, as John had mentioned, they had shot the Red Monstro as their A camera and Jeff had really enjoyed that experience. But beyond that, we knew that there was going to be heavy visual effects integration. And Red, as you know, you may or may not be aware, their metadata system, their post post-friendliness is, is widely known. So having the most amount of resolution, having the most amount of flexibility with the footage in post uh, was really something that we needed to be able to deliver to the VFX houses. So that drove that decision home for us and just solidified it. On the lens side of things, that's really where I came in uh, because John had shot Spherical on the documentary side of things, my immediate instinct was to go anamorphic for the narrative side, just to give an immediate distinction between the two worlds so the audience is kind of visually clued in. So we shot on the Cook anamorphics, uh, both the non-special flare and the special flare anamorphics. Talk a little bit about anamorphic and what someone watching the film would be noticing if they knew they were anamorphic lenses. Anamorphic, the, the easiest way to tell, well, there's kind of like the the J.J. Abrams flares, I think that a lot of us have for a long time associated with. I think that's probably what most people would immediately associate, but anamorphics tend to have far more to them than just the way that they flare. There's the the oval bokeh. Um, so the way that things fall out of focus on a spherical lens, it would typically fall out of focus and look like a circle. On an anamorphic lens, it would look like an oval. So that's a, an easy way to distinguish between the two. But beyond that, there's lots of characteristics that are distinct to the different types of anamorphic lenses. So it's not a, not really a one size fits all, but I'd say that horizontal flares um, and those oval bokehs are probably the two most common distinguishing factors of anamorphic. 
And so you incorporated these to create a different look for the narrative portions, as you were saying. Yeah, you're right. That was, uh, I brought them in just to, to create a, a distinct look for the narrative sections. And I, the reason I used two different sets was I pitched Jeff on using the special flair anamorphics for the real world sections. So they have a little more flair. They've got a little more um, characteristic to them uh, in the way that light hits them and refracts. And then in the AI section, I used the non-special flair anamorphics because I wanted to mitigate as many additional additional elements uh, because we'd have to be doing so many visual effects in that AI section. I wanted not only stylistically to have a cleaner look than the real world, but I also wanted to keep in mind the post-process <laughs> and not make their lives unnecessarily uh, difficult. <laughs> not when they had been so nice to you guys, as you said all along. Yeah. <laughs> a real, real dick move. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like you like you like me now, but wait till you get in post. I mean, I, I will say I do know that doing visual effects for anamorphic is and was a challenge for them because of those characteristics that I mentioned. They had to map each lens. So uh, Matt Schultz, who we who we mentioned. At the end of one of our days of filming, he took uh, my ACs and the camera and the lenses over to a chart and he would map them so that they would take those in post and they would know how it distorted. They would undistort footage and then redistort it um, when they were putting the visual effects in place. So that's how it looks so incorporated into the environment was they knew how the lenses behaved. Very impressive. I feel like there's something else I had wanted to, um, oh yeah, stylistically, that first conversation I had with Jeff, we, did, we didn't really discuss references as far as I can remember. Like a lot of projects all come in and we'll, we'll talk about paintings or we'll talk about other films that we like or other pieces of art that kind of uh, influence us or inspire us visually. We didn't do that with this. The, the prerogative from the very beginning from Jeff was that we wanted to treat this like, you know, a serious drama with, with almost elements of a, of a thriller or a mystery. So that was kind of the guiding, um, the guiding visual note from Jeff. So we, we tried to light it as such. We tried to, to treat it more seriously. As one DP watching it, I really thought you were very successful at sort of infusing those, um, that sort of. Yeah, a little bit of the thriller, a little bit of the horror, the flares and the the anamorphic and just the the lighting. I thought you did a really good job of sort of preloading it to feel a little bit ominous. Um, oh, thank you. Because <laughs> it is, it's like a the description of hearing the interview subjects talking about it is one thing, but to yeah. sort of see it play out in your family, which is essentially what you guys were doing, that that I thought that was successful. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was rewatching it not all that long ago, and it it does feel like a horror film in a lot of ways it is i think you know most of that if not all of it comes from the you know, obviously the subject matter and the interviewers um and what they're discussing but on the technical side of things like our, i gotta give a shout out to our composer mark crawford who just did a stellar job with the compositions and added this eerie ominous kind of droning threat to everything so the entire film comes together in post Neither of you are involved in that. And if I understand correctly, you two met for the first time when the film premiered at Sundance. Yeah, there was a meeting of the whole cast and crew at the headquarters at Sundance. And uh, I walked in the room and I sat down in the big circle and I was sitting next to Jonathan and we met at that very moment and immediately had a great rapport. I was like, yeah. you know, I really, we, we got on famously from the get-go. I wonder though, Tell me if before you guys had met and realized that uh, you guys were so in sync, were there any concerns about how your work might integrate with another DP's work? I think 
there's always that in the back of your mind. Like with any film, you just don't know that something is going to land the way that you're hoping it's going to land. It's it's this weird alchemy of you know we're we're testing we're we're scientists we're testing this theory, hoping that it's going to work. So yeah, I guess there's always that thought in the back of the mind. But they like I mentioned with that cut that had the storyboards in, that was already a great proof of concept to see that, yeah, this narrative is fitting in. This does feel tonally correct. This does cut in at the right moment. So that was already giving us a lot of confidence that we were headed in the right direction. But yeah, I, I think that there's always that that risk that, well, what if it doesn't work? You know, you don't know. That's a big challenge I run into with documentary all the time, because so often with the documentary, I'll be on a project for two years. And it's not shooting consistently for two years. So you're on again and off again. And sometimes scheduling conflicts come up and you can't shoot a day or they need to shoot at the same time in another city. And so you're really relying on the production to find someone that has the, the style and eye that you have so that they can carry on the work. And I've done that for both. I've been that person that picked up for another DP and I have, I have established looks that other DPs have picked up. And it's a challenge to make sure that that is consistent across the board. And how do you have that interview with someone and say, so do you think like I do? Because you can't <laughs> ask that question, right? You can say, how do you approach this? Or how would you approach that? Or here's the scenarios that you're going to likely find yourself in. And here's how I've been solving it. How would you? So yeah, I think we had like the, we had the Goldilocks on this one because I feel like our work dovetailed very well together. I mean, and I think that has a lot to do with Daniel and Jeff and Larissa and looking at Jonathan, finding Jonathan and finding his, finding his work and saying, oh yeah, this will work well with what Barons did. So kudos to those guys for casting well, <laughs> but I have had it not go so well in the past, uh, more on traditional doc where they found someone that was available or a recommendation of a recommendation in that has not gone great in the past. Well, in this case, it does come together well, but of course you don't need me to tell you that. The reviews are great. And the two of you are sharing an Emmy nomination for the cinematography on this film. How does the yeah. attention for a project like this, in this case, a previous project for both of you, again, you haven't been on the project for some time. How does it affect the work you're doing on a current project? I guess my mission statement has always been to sort of entertain and educate people worldwide by being involved in issue films that would hopefully change people's minds in a good way. And the Emmy nomination helps amplify that. Whether I worked on it or not, I feel like The Social Dilemma is a film that people need to see because it's addressing an issue that is intrinsically a problem in our society and worldwide. The Emmy nomination helps amplify that that much more and that many more people will see it. And so that makes the work that I am attempting to do that much more effective. And then hopefully I'll be able to be attached to and work on projects in the future that will have similar impact in a positive way. You know, when I, when I first came onto this, I had the feeling that it was going to be something special, not just because the team was amazing, but because the subject matter just felt so, so urgent and so pressing. So when it came out and it was so incredibly well-received, I had friends and family that I haven't spoken to in a very long time reaching out to express how much it had affected them. And just to see conversations starting online and the education starting to, to happen, that was, that felt really really special to be a part of. So is there ever a case where someone sees a film like this and then you get typecast with a certain style that somebody wants to have that in their movie and they come to you for that reason? Yeah, I've definitely been approached since making The Social Dilemma 
by other productions that wanted to do something that looked like Social Dilemma. Um, and that's always a challenge you know, for, th- for two reasons. One, what I created for the film Social Dilemma is the Social Dilemma, and that belongs to the film, and it needs to stay with the film. And I can go on and infuse my stylistic approach in a different way to another film and have notes of that appear in the next film, but it's almost more difficult to try not to repeat something that you've just done in order to preserve the integrity of that as a pure vision. And so, yeah, sometimes you have to sort of swim against that trend that people will say, hey, let's get the guy that did Social Dilemma and he'll shoot it just like Social Dilemma. Yeah, I I think I I haven't experienced that so much, partially because narrative just operates so differently from documentary. You know, every every script is different. Every script takes takes a, a different approach. I will say it is just a funny coincidence that earlier that same year that I shot Social Dilemma, I had shot that uh, the horror feature that I had mentioned, Initiation, which also deals very heavily with social media. And that is incorporated within kind of the space and the world of the characters. That film was not finished when I came on to the Social Dilemma. So there was no conversation between the two, but it is kind of a funny coincidence that in the same year, I, I did happen to work on two films that have heavy integration of social media and, and visual effects and kind of speak to the detrimental effects of that uh, in two different ways. But that was just kind of a some sort of serendipitous universe <laughs> collision that happened in 2019. Well, what's next for each of you? Yeah, so I, I'm working on a few different projects. Um there's a feature that I've been on that we're going to be wrapping up fairly soon. It's a, a new mystery uh, feature film, kind of a noir type of film that I'm very excited about. And I'm also pitching uh, for a project that I can't speak on yet. And I'm shooting a documentary, actually, whose subject I also cannot speak about. But um, all of that's uh, all of that's going really well. Yeah, I'm thankful as well that uh, after the pandemic, that work has come back online full on. I'm currently shooting a Netflix original feature documentary, and I am developing or am in development on several other projects, one of which is very interesting, science-based, might be international. That's exciting. And then there's also some discussion about some little narrative things. So it's like Jonathan and I are kind of crossing um, in the stratosphere, (laughs) Crossing crossing streams, But yeah, lots of interesting stuff in the works. It feels like all of the streaming services are really hungry for content. And so Mm -hmm. there's uh, a lot of stuff in the works. And I'm really excited about uh, some of the stuff we're working on and what's coming out next. As that stuff comes out, I hope you guys will come back and talk about it. Here, we're hungry for the kind of behind the scenes details that you guys have shared. Thanks so much for your time today, guys. It was a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you, Skid. Thanks for taking your time with us. And that's a wrap for season eight of the podcast. Planning for season nine is already underway, but I need the next month or so to get ahead. In the meantime, if you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits and like guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our work. 
The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. And a special thanks to our regular listeners. I appreciate your patience and loyalty. We'll be back with new episodes soon.